Well, happy Mother's Day from me to you, all of you moms and grandmothers, and even a few great-grandmothers in our midst this morning. We're very, very blessed that you're here with us. Um, but I've got to confess, I don't have a special Mother's Day message for you today. And that's not because mom lives don't matter. They certainly matter. And, uh, but, you know, Justin honestly did a lot. Pastor Justin did a lot of the heavy lifting there. What a beautiful scripture reading and prayer for us this morning. And thank you for that. Um, but really, the reason I don't have a devoted Mother's Day message for us this morning is because the most important thing that I could help all of you mothers and grandmothers with this morning is, is simply this, just becoming a spiritually mature and vibrant woman of God. I mean, if you can have that going for you in your life, you're going to be doing all right. And God's going to be glorified and your family's going to be blessed by you. And Psalm 19 is that type of passage that really, really can have a profound effect on us for all of us who have ears to hear what the Lord would say to us this morning. And so I'm excited to be able to teach and preach from this great passage of scripture. And I've been praying this week and trusting this week that the Lord will use his holy word to great effect in all of our hearts and in our lives uh, as a result of the time we spend in it. So Psalm chapter 19, um, I've alluded to this already, but this is, again, there's a handful of these Psalms out of the collection of Psalms. There's 150 of them, but there's a handful of these Psalms that really are just kind of like the Mount Rushmore of the Psalter, and Psalm 19 is one of them. In fact, C.S. Lewis, the famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia, that great Oxford Don, said of Psalm 19, he said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And he was an expert. His, his discipline was literature. But Lewis is not alone in his high praise for Psalm 19. It is a masterpiece as far as a piece of literature, but it's rich theologically and it's a beautiful, beautiful treasure in God's word. Now, there are different ways that people attempt to sort of break up Psalm 19 and different ways that people try to theme Psalm 19, but it seems that the central idea of the psalm is speech. Speech. In the first third, verses 1 through 6, creation speaks. And then you move to verses 7 through 11, and scripture speaks. And then finally, in the remarkable conclusion, verses 12 through 14, the psalmist speaks. And so it seems that speech is the central idea of the psalm. But speech, of course, is never an end in itself. Although it may feel like it was some people who just talk to talk, right? But speech is not an end in itself. When we speak, when we use language, when we communicate, we're trying to accomplish something with our speech. The speech of Psalm 19, we read in verse 2, is trying to accomplish something. It reveals knowledge. That's what verse 2 says. And this knowledge is specifically knowledge of God. Thus, Psalm 19 is ultimately about God revealing himself to humanity. I titled our sermon then in Psalm 19, God's Self-Disclosure. God's self-disclosure. This is God's way of revealing himself to all of us as image bearers of God. Now, we'll learn in this psalm how God reveals himself to us, and we'll we're going to learn how this knowledge of who God is 
should change each and every person. Verses one through six, point number one, general revelation. This is what we find here, general revelation. The point in verses one through six is that creation itself reveals God to us. And theologians call this general revelation. This is general revelation because it's revelation that is made to all people. Every single person who is alive on planet earth currently, every single person who has lived throughout the history of the world has access to some knowledge of God simply by virtue of the fact that they live in creation and they can behold creation. And creation, according to Psalm 19, is declaring the, the glory of God. Creation is revealing knowledge to us about God. It is making things about God known to every single person. Now, the specific part of creation that David has in mind here is the heavens or the sky. That's what he says in verse 1. In verse 2, he says, day and night. So he's, he's talking about uh, a certain part of creation. Again, we can think back of David's time as a shepherd in Israel and how probably many nights he'd look up at that beautiful night sky and many mornings he'd see the sun racing across the sky and those experiences in his life are causing him to reflect on the message that the heavens are trying to communicate. Even more specifically, David has in mind the heavenly bodies that we see in the sky. We see that from verse one, where he refers to God's handiwork or the work of God's hands. Um, we recall chapter eight, that other wonderful Psalm, where David says this in Psalm 8, three, he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, this is the same idea of your handiwork, he says, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So David here in Psalm 19 now is talking about God's handiwork and he's referring to the moon and he's referring to the stars in the heavens. And then of course, he clearly is talking about the sun in verses four through six. And as we noted, David says that these heavenly bodies, these aspects of the created world reveal knowledge to us of God. The sun, the moon, the stars above, they speak, as it were. We see that in verse 1. <clears throat> he uses the word declare. He uses the word proclaims. In verse 2, it says, pours out speech. In verse 4, it says, their voice goes out and their words to the end of the world. So he's talking about a speech act that happens through creation. Of course, he doesn't mean that we have conversations with creation. We don't hear an audible voice coming from the moon at night. We don't go chat it up with a tree, okay? There's not real words coming out. He qualifies what he means in verse 3. He says, creation speaks, but without the use of words. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The NIV, New International Version, makes the meaning of verse 3 even more clear. It's translated there like this. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. So creation here is being personified. Creation's uh, given, given human attributes. It's as if creation is talking and speaking, but it doesn't literally speak. It's nonverbal communication. 
but it is communication nonetheless. Verse four, verse four excuse me, says, their voice goes out throughout all the earth. The Apostle Paul likely had Psalm 19 in mind when he was writing Romans chapter 1. And Paul says there, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How so? Well, in verse 20, he says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul's sharing the exact same idea. That as we look at creation, we learn certain things about God. Paul refers to his power and his nature. Now this helps us to account for why all peoples throughout history with virtually zero exceptions have been religious people. People look at creation and they realize, you know what? All of this was here before I showed up. All of this is going to be here long after I'm gone. And it, it strikes us with a sense of awe when you look at creation. It's almost overwhelming. And it's not surprising that many peoples throughout the history of the world have actually worshipped creation itself. When you look at the heavenly bodies... When you go to a place like the Grand Canyon or Yosemite or you see something so majestic in nature, it does strike a sense of awe in you and reverence and, and it's almost a worshipful experience. When you look at nature in all of its beauty, in all of its grandeur, in all of its intricacies, it leaves us as human beings in awe. But Paul here is making an important point. Or I'm sorry, David here is making an important point. And Paul makes the same one in Romans chapter 1. That the glory of creation is not supposed to cause us to worship creation. It's supposed to point us beyond itself to the creator God. That as we see the beauty and the majesty and the grandeur and the intricacy of creation itself... We're learning things about the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty and the power and the wisdom and the creativity of God himself. And that causes us to wonder and it causes us to be a, pre a people who worship. And Paul tells us because of this, human beings are left without excuse. If human beings are going to suppress that knowledge that is coming to us through creation and deny that this is speaking of God and his nature, then we're left without excuse. And the only fitting response for all of us from this amazing, powerful, beautiful, glorious God would be judgment. Creation is the work of God's hands. And it's amazing because Paul takes sort of the chief heavenly body, the sun, which as many of you know, was widely worshipped in the ancient world. And he takes the sun and he wants to make a point in verses 4 and 6, which is even the sun, even the sun, which so many people in, in Paul's day worshipped, the Egyptians, for example, even the sun is the work of God's hands. He says in verse 4 that in them, the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun. 
Don't worship that. That's just part of the creation. And God's set that in its place. And God's set a tent in the heavens for the sun so that the sun can retreat to bed each night, so to speak. But then, or David reminds us, it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. The picture is likely a groom joyfully re, uh, leaving his room after the wedding night. So the groom is coming out of the bedroom chamber after his wedding night. And guess what? He's exuberant and he's joyful and he's full of life. He goes on to say, like a strong man, the word refers to a hero. Think of maybe an Olympic athlete. He says, like a strong man, the sun runs its course with joy. Every day, like clockwork, the sun leaves its tent and it runs its race across the heavens from one side of the earth to the other, from the east to the west. And it does so with precision and it does so with boundless energy. It never slows down. It never tires. It just perfectly carries out the job that God has appointed for it. And David reminds us that as it does that, its heat touches every single nook and cranny of all of the earth. David living in Israel, which is a dry, arid, warm climate. David knew that there was nowhere you could go when you were out in that desert to escape the rays and the heat and the warmth of the sun. It touches every single inch. And so let's pause. Let's summarize for a moment what we've learned so far. We've learned that creation testifies to the glory of God. That through this beautiful creation that we live in, we are learning things. We are receiving knowledge about God's existence. <clears throat> We're receiving knowledge about God's power and God's creativity and God's wisdom and beauty. But all of a sudden, starting in verse 7, there appears to be this sudden shift that takes place. David's talking about the heavenly bodies and he's talking about the sun. And then all of a sudden he's talking about the Bible. <laughs> he's talking about scripture, the word of God. But this should not surprise us. This is not out of nowhere at all because creation is not the only way that God speaks. God speaks to us through his word. And thank God creation is not the only way that God speaks because it would have never been enough for us to truly know God. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, even good nonverbal communication is easily misinterpreted. We need something more, end quote. And isn't he right? How many times have you misinterpreted somebody else's nonverbal communication? It's very easy to do. It happens all the time. I remember at our previous church that I was on staff at, my wife, this is not going to be an embarrassing story. That'd be terrible to do to my wife on Mother's Day. But we were there and there was a, an older pastor that was on staff who was a very serious man. Didn't laugh a lot, just a very serious guy. And, and he was one of, this, is, this was a church with like 30 pastors. So we didn't, or my wife didn't know this particular pastor super well, but she was in a room uh, and, and uh, they were talking and having a conversation and she went to exit the room. And as she did, he reached out to her. They were saying goodbye to each other and he reached out like this. And my wife is like thinking to herself, well, this is kind of unusual that he wants to hug me, but whatever. So she reaches over to hug him and right as her arms going around his back, his arm hits the door to hold the door open. And it becomes clear to her as she's going in for the hug that he's not trying to hug me at all. 
He's trying to be a gentleman and hold the door open for me, but she had already committed at that point, so there was no going back. And she hugged him and just walked out, never brought it up again. But we've all had experiences like that. Somebody's nonverbal cues, their communication, they're trying to say something to us and we misinterpret it. And Keller's point is great here. That we need more than nonverbal communication. We need something more than general revelation. We need direct revelation. We need special revelation is the term that theologians use. And this brings us to the next section in point number two this morning. Verses 7 through 11 describe for us God's special revelation. This revelation now that is located, not generally in the heavens and in all of creation, but specifically and specially in the written word of God. So there's this shift that goes from God's works to God's word. Also, and this is so important, there's a shift in the the name for God in Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7. In verses 1 through 6, There is a generic name for God that is used, El, also translated in other places, Elohim. So it's a Hebrew word that speaks of God, the creator, a divine being. And that's the word for God through verses 1 through 6. Well, really, I think the only usage is in verse 1. But in that section on creation and general revelation, there's a generic name for God. But when we get to verse 7... Through verse 10, there is going to be, or verse 9 rather, there's going to be the usage of God's covenant name, Yahweh, six different times. So again, we go from God's generic name about God to all of the sudden now, when we're talking about the word of God, God's covenant name, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The name that communicates that I belong to these people and these people belong to me. And these people are my special people among all of the peoples on earth. I am the Lord and these are my people. And the point is very obvious here. Knowledge of God comes through creation. Relationship with God comes through the scriptures. Knowledge of God comes through creation. You can learn things, and you do, and you should learn things about God from creation. But you cannot have relationship with God apart from the Word of God. It comes to us through the Scriptures of God. If not for the Word of God, we would all be lost. We would not know Him in a meaningful way. We would not know Him in a saving way. We would not know him in a covenantal relationship. That comes to God's people through the scriptures. So you might be here this morning and you might be a person who says, I believe in God. And you might genuinely believe in God, that there's a creator out there, or there's some power, or there's some force in the universe that is behind everything that we see. But I want to tell you something, that's not enough to just believe in God or believe in a creator. That's not going to save you and that's not going to bring you into a right relationship with the true God. According to Romans 1, all that does is leave you without an excuse. So the question becomes, do you believe in God 
as he's revealed himself in his word and thus respond appropriately. That's totally different. That, that's a type of belief that is saying, I'm going to respond to the creator. I'm going to respond to God in the ways that he is telling me to and in response to what he's revealed about himself to be true. And that's the way that we can come into relationship with God is by responding to him appropriately. If you've not done that, you have no relationship with God in this life or the next. The word of God here referred to as the law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules is what establishes our relationship with God and what guides our relationship with God. It is through the word of God that Jesus, our Savior, is made known to us. It is through the word of God that our sin is exposed to us and our plight as being people who are separated from God because of our sins is exposed to us. And so the word of God is our tutor. It's the, the thing that leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, David in this passage here is going to showcase many of the benefits of the word of God for us, but he's going to start with the fact that the word of God is what establishes our relationship with God, as I've been saying. There's going to be six characteristics here about the word of God. So he's going to use six different kind of descriptors for the word of God, followed by six blessings that come to us through the word of God in these couple of verses. So he begins with this word, if you're a note taker, you could jot these down, that the word of God is perfect. It's perfect. That word means to be complete. It means to be whole. It carries the idea that the word of God needs nothing more to be added to it. Right now, the word of God is whole. It's complete. It's perfect. There's nothing you can add to it to make it better and improve it. There's nothing more that we need beyond it. It's sufficient for what God wants it to accomplish. Peter in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 writes this. He says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So everything that we need for life, everything that we need for godliness has been granted to us from God through the knowledge of him. What kind of knowledge? Well, let's go on. Who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He's talking about the word of God. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So God's word is whole. It's complete. It's perfect. It's everything that you and I need for life and for godliness. He says that the benefit of that is that this perfect word of God is able to revive the soul. Revive the soul. Spiritually speaking, every single person, according to Ephesians chapter 2, is dead in their trespasses and their sins. Now, if you dropped dead from a heart attack 
and we rushed you into the ER, they would need to resuscitate you, (laughs) bring you back. This is our condition spiritually, that we need our soul to be revived. We need to be resuscitated, so to speak. We need to be given life, brought to life. And God's word is the tool that God's spirit uses to bring us to life. It comes through the word. The Holy Spirit uses the word and brings faith out of us. And through our faith comes union with Christ who is our life and who gives us eternal life. Now, interestingly, the root word here means to turn back or to return. To turn back or return. Can anyone think of another word that begins with an R that means to turn back or return? That's not rhetorical. You can throw it out if you want. Repent. Repent. The word repent literally means to turn, to do a 180 or to return. In fact, this same word is translated in other passages in the Old Testament as repent. That, that it's the word of God we're learning here that can cause us and does cause us to repent and return to the Lord. Going back to Psalm chapter 7, verse 12, in a context that is talking about judgment coming from God if we don't repent, here's what it says. If a man does not repent, same Hebrew word, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. So it's the word of God that brings us to life by causing us to repent and return to the Lord and say, I'm, I'm not going to live in rebellion. I'm not going to live in my sin. I'm going to live for the Lord and according to his word. How does the word of God do this? How could it cause us to repent? Well, it does it by revealing our sin to us. If not for God's word, we'd have a pretty fuzzy idea of how we should live and how God expects us to live. Because of God's word, there's no fuzziness. We can look at the word of God and say, these are the commands of God. These are the things that are right. These are the things that God demands of me. And then we can realize how painfully short we all fall. We can agree with the testimony of scripture that there is none righteous, no, not one. And what that knowledge does is it prepares us for the Savior who is also revealed to us in the Word of God. Right? If we were not painfully aware of our sinfulness, we would have no sense that we need a Savior. Like none of us would ever submit to chemotherapy unless the doctors confirmed we had cancer. You wouldn't just go, yeah, sure, sign me up for that. That sounds cool. I've got some sick leave next week. I'll just go do chemo for the week. Like who would ever do that? You would never, ever do that. But if the doctor comes to you and shows you the scans and says, this is your only option, you might say, you know what? I'll I'll clear my calendar for the next couple of months. Let's do it. Let's submit to it. This is what the word of God does. It exposes our sin and it exposes our need. And then it points us to a savior. So all of a sudden inside of us, we say, "I, I need that. I want that. And we repent and we trust in Christ and we're saved. Thus, it's the scriptures that are what make us wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15. All right, I better start moving. Number two, sure. This means certain, trustworthy, reliable. The word of God is 
sure. In other words, you and I can have confidence in the word of God. And one of the ways that we grow in our confidence in the Bible is by watching it make wise the simple. We go, wow, God's word can be trusted because when you obey it and when you do the word of God, it leads to a blessed life. And when you don't, it leads to a lot of tragedy and destruction and disaster. There are many smart people, intelligent people, who are smart and foolish at the exact same time. You know people like that? You look at them and you go, you're so stinking smart, but you just make the dumbest decisions. Right? Like a high IQ does not equal wise living. And on the reverse side, don't you know people who maybe are simple folk? Maybe that's a nice way to say it. They're, they're simple folk, right? They're not going to go and get a PhD per se. We wouldn't think of them as incredibly intelligent per se. And yet they live lives that are just so wise. They make great decisions. They have wonderful relationships and families around them. They have a high social or emotional IQ. And you look at their life and it seems like everything that they touch and everywhere that they go, there's blessing that follows them. And they're filled with joy and they live a life that is at peace. God's word is capable of making wise the simple. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to live life in a way that's consistent with the way that God designed you to live it and therefore experience tremendous blessing. In fact, you just have to be so simple that you say, I actually am not smart enough to have everything figured out. So I'm going to just listen to God. I'm going to do what he says. And do it his way. When you start living your life that way, you live a life that is wise. You start living with skill in the world. Number three, he says the word of God is right. This word means straight. Okay? It means level. It means correct. The word of God is right. And so family, no matter how loudly our culture declares that truth is relative and that morality is relative and that what is right for you is right for you, we just aren't going to go there. We're not going to do that. We don't play that game. The word of God is correct. The word of God is right. And that means that there are other ways of seeing the world and understanding ultimate reality that are in fact wrong and incorrect, period. And we're not going to apologize for that. We're not going to capitulate. We're not going to surrender the truthfulness of God's word. Because to do that is to lead to our own destruction and to start living in ways that are not in congruence with the way that God has designed us and designed the world. The word of God is correct. It is right. It's like walking the straight and narrow. It's like being on a level place. You get a footing underneath you that secures you to live a blessed life through the word of God. And here's what's so cool. God's word, which is right, which is correct, rejoices the heart. When you live your life in obedience to the word of God, that's not a recipe for misery. This is 
a recipe for joy and happiness and satisfaction. When you build your life on the word of God, you are, you are seeking your own happiness and your own joy. And there's nothing wrong with that. God wants you to do that. God's not a killjoy. God's saying, look, I want you to be happy. I designed you for that. And so here's how it's going to come about. It's going to come about through relationship with me. And it's going to come about by walking in accordance with my word. I've spelled it out for you. I've given you all the things you need to know. You want to be happy? Just do it this way. God's word rejoices the heart. And so those who pursue obedience end up finding themselves quite joyful, quite happy, quite satisfied. Too many people think they know better. They think that their way is going to lead to happiness. Proverbs 14, 12, though, reminds us there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's such a heavy verse. There's a way that seems right to a person. They're looking at it and they're doing their calculation. They're saying, no, this is right for me. This is true for me. This will make me happy. Don't try to rain on my parade. Don't correct me. Don't challenge me. I know what I'm doing. And people have said that for millennia. And they've walked off a cliff and perished. It's just not the way. We're not smart enough to know the way that is right, but the word of God is right. And so those who trust in the word of God and those who build their lives on the word of God are not going to go the way that leads to destruction. They're going to go the way that leads to life and joy and peace forevermore. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Blessed, oh, how happy is what that, what that word means. Oh, how happy is the person whose counsel is coming from the word of God. Number four, the word of God is pure. This means that it's clean. This means that it's unmixed. This means that it's free from pollutants. Let me say it differently. This means that the word of God has no hint of error. Okay, you can't look at the Bible and say, well, this book here is 96% spot on and 4% disposable. So I'm going to just, I'm going to take all these, these parts that I love, but these other parts, I just got to throw that stuff out. That's not how it works. It's unmixed. It's perfect in its totality. It is pure and it is 100% spot on. Every commandment, every promise, every line on every single page, even obscure places like the book of Numbers are true and they're right and they're awesome and they're transformative. And guess what they do? They enlighten your eyes. This speaks of illumination. This speaks of knowledge that, that you increase in over time, that you're enlightened. Like the blind man who Jesus healed, who said, at, he said, once I was blind, but now I see. Every single person who by faith 
trust in the Lord and by faith receives the word of God every single day of their life, they are enlightened. Their eyes are opened. They're able to see the world the way it actually is. It will help you to see ultimate reality. It will help you to rise above the times. You can actually, through the scripture, have a perspective on the world that transcends this cultural moment so that we're not tossed to and fro by every new wave and idea and current of thought and ideology that comes out from the academy or from Hollywood or from anywhere else. You get an eternal cosmic perspective on life. Your eyes are enlightened. They're they're illuminated and you have knowledge that you can build your life on. And it all comes to us through the word of God. My children read God's word and they comprehend it. You don't have to be a scholar to just glean truth and wisdom from God's word. Number five, it's clean, literally pure. This is similar to the previous point, but this has nuances of being ceremonially clean. It means to be unblemished and acceptable before the Lord. The word of God sanctifies us. It removes the filth of sin from our lives. It's the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives. As we go to God's word day in and day out, and by faith we seek to be obedient. Sin is being removed from our lives and we're becoming more like Christ. And that work of sanctification, which is brought through fear of the Lord or reverence of the Lord, And it's brought about through reverence to his word. That work endures forever. Finally, the word of God is true. It's true. The word really, though, carries the idea of being faithful. So think of it this way. The word of God is true in every season and for all time. This wasn't more true to ancient people 2,000 years ago than it is for us today. It's not going to be less true tomorrow than it is today. It's not more true when everything seems to be going right in your life and less true when you're going through hardship. It's true. It's faithful in every season and in every way. And David says it's righteous all together. All of the commands of God are right because they are aimed at and flowing from righteousness. Therefore, We have no fear of being on the wrong side of history. Family, the point that I'm trying to make is, I think the point David was making some 3,000 years ago. This book that we are so privileged to have access to is a a treasure beyond all compare. That this book that so often we neglect and we leave on the shelf And we'd go and we'd rather listen to and read and watch and hear from a million different voices. This is our most precious and treasured earthly possession. Because through this, we can have life and we can have godliness because it connects us by faith to God himself. And so we can understand in verse 10 where he says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. 
He couldn't have used more profound language in the ancient world to express the value, the immeasurable worth of God's word. One of the telltale signs that God's word is at work in your life is that you love the word of God. That you delight in it. That you want to read it. That you realize that Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so you treat the Bible that way. I have to get into this. I have to feast on this. I have to hear from my God. And like David, you acknowledge that by his commands, we are warned, meaning we're kept from danger. And so, of course, according to verse 11, there is great reward in keeping them. Okay. So far, this poem has been a beautiful reflection on God's works and God's word, reminding us that this is how God speaks to us and reminding us that for those of us who listen, we are changed in wonderful and beautiful ways. But perhaps, and I hesitate to say this, but perhaps the real glory of Psalm 19 is in this remarkable conclusion where we see the word of God having the exact effect on David that he said the word of God should have on all who read it. So this brings us to point number three, personal illumination. As David himself is writing this, and he ponders the inescapable reach of the word of God and the unrivaled power of the scriptures, what happens? His own heart is pricked. And his own sinfulness is laid bare, exposed to him. He writes, who can discern his errors? David goes into a moment of introspection. As the sword of God's word has pierced into even his own soul. And he says, man, who is capable of even discerning their own errors? We're so sinful that there's many sins we aren't even aware of that are going on inside of us. It's convicted. And I would submit to you that if the word of God does not bring conviction of your own sin, not your spouse's sin, not your boss's sin, not your children's sin, not sin in some general sense, if the word of God does not bring conviction over your own sin, then the word of God has not yet affected you in any meaningful sense. And from as far as I can tell in the pages of scripture, you do not have a saving relationship with the Lord. David here, the man after God's own heart, convicted over his own sin. Here's the irony. Even with all of the revelation that David talks about in Psalm 19, creation speaking, the word speaking, David confesses in this verse that he does possess ignorance, but it's ignorance of his own sinfulness. Nothing is easier than to point out someone else's sin, and nothing is harder than pinpointing your own sin. Right? Isn't that what Jesus taught? When Jesus talked about how we're so quick to point out the speck in a brother's eye, And meanwhile, we have a log in our own eye. It's so true. I can see the tiniest flaw in my wife. But she can, I got to be very careful. 
Preaching is so dangerous sometimes. She can be telling me the same thing for a decade. And then she just gives me that look. Like, you're never going to get it, are you? Brothers, am I all alone here? Like, is anybody going to help me out? Don't leave me out here. We can see the speck in somebody else's eye, but we are blinded to the massive inconsistencies in ourselves. It's one of our deepest problems as human beings. But David here knows the depth of his own sinfulness, and he knows the difficulty in discerning it. And so he turns to prayer here, and he asks God, declare me from my innocent and hidden fault. Or I'm sorry, declare me innocent, rather, from my hidden faults. Notice that David has now moved from conviction to confession. He's acknowledging, I have these hidden faults, these secret sins, these things that I'm probably not even aware of, and I need you to forgive me, Lord. So conviction now has led to confession, and he's acknowledging his sin and asking for God's forgiveness. Why do we have hidden sins? Well, they might be unknown to us because we're self-deceived, which I was alluding to a moment ago, or they might be unknown to us because we're ignorant about certain commands that God has for us. But guess what? Either way, we need God's forgiveness. We need forgiveness for all of our sins, known sins and unknown sins. And here's the great news of the scriptures. Jesus the Christ offers us full and complete pardon for every single sin that we have ever committed if we repent and we trust in him as our savior. When Jesus hung on that cross, he said, it is finished. There's no sin that we still have to pay for if we've come to Christ. So notice the effect God's word has had. It convicted David of his sin. It led him to confession where he seeks God's forgiveness. And now finally, and this is the conclusion here, it leads David to the pursuit of a holy life. Look at verse 13. This prayer now goes on. He's asked for this forgiveness. Now he says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Those whom the word of God has taken root in their life, are not content with living in their sin. I cannot state this more clearly. If God's word has really dug roots in your life, you can't just sit there year after year and decade after decade and just say, I'm happy living in my sin. There is a drive and it's a drive that the spirit of God is behind. With all of his divine power, there is a drive toward Christ-likeness. There is a drive to pursue godliness and holiness. And David's not just content with cheap grace and saying, God, forgive me. I know I've done a lot of rotten stuff. The very next phrase in his prayer is, and keep me back from sin. He doesn't want to live this way anymore. He wants to live rightly before the Lord. There's a pursuit now of holiness and consecration to the Lord. He's seeking a holy life. And so the psalm ends with David bringing his words and thus all of his life and his thoughts, which he calls the meditations of his heart, as an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord, 
because the Lord is his rock and the Lord is his redeemer. And family, this is the posture of life of every child of God once the word of God has taken root in them. Paul puts it this way famously in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What an incredible psalm. David's message to us this morning is God speaks. God's not hidden. He's revealed himself to us. And for those of us who respond, who hear his voice and his word, great transformation is going to result from that. We're going to experience what Christ talked about, life and that in abundance. This is David's message to us this morning. And as Christians, we agree wholeheartedly with what he says. God has revealed himself to, to us in his works and in his word. But we believe this in even more expansive ways than David because we know that his word also includes the New Testament, which David did not have. And most significantly of all, we know that his word includes the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. John's gospel begins like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Apart from God's self-disclosure in his son, Jesus Christ, all of our knowledge of God would be forever incomplete. In fact, in verse 18 of that chapter, John writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, referring to Jesus, has made him known. Apart from the incarnation, apart from Christ coming and becoming a man and dwelling among us, how could we have ever known that the one true God who we are called to love and worship and serve and relate to is a triune God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That would have been lost on us for all of history. Christ alone, the Word who became flesh, is the full and final and ultimate revelation and self-disclosure of God himself. And so as Christians, yes, we agree with everything David is writing here, but there's more. The final conclusion that we draw as Christians is that if anybody is going to truly know the God behind all of this marvelous creation, it's going to come through knowing Christ. And therefore, this morning, we come to him again by grace, through faith, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.